uh, driving to Gardner for the first time um, and being so angry at my parents for uprooting us uh, from the suburbs to this little cow town uh, that it was at the time. Um, and so much of my life um, was sucked away from me in that move. I didn't fit into Gardner. I had a hard time finding my voice. Um, and uh, there's been several occasions where I've had the chance to speak about UCA, and it feels impossible to do that without recognizing um, that a large reason that I get to do what I do is because there have been people along the way who have believed in me. And if I could say anything to grown-ups, it's that there are kids who need you to believe in them. There are little kids like me who had lost their voice for whatever reason, who need a Chris and Esther to say you can do it. Uh, Doug and Carrie have been those people in my corner uh, who first trusted me with their children, um, which how did you let them get big? Uh, I'm still angry about all of this. But, uh, and, then, and then would listen to my dreams and my ideas and grown-ups who continued to take my sometimes radical or over-the-top or odd ideas and say, we'll believe in that and we'll invest in that. Uh, I think it makes me emotional, not just for myself, but there are so many kids who don't have those people. And there's so many great ideas in the world that are squashed because there are grown-ups who are dream killers. And I pray that the body of Christ becomes this uh, place of, uh, like, uh, of imagination that's sparked because we listen to kids uh, we believe in them. We invest in their dreams and their visions. Um, I wouldn't be able to say I'm fighting for kids in the urban core if there weren't people who fought for me and fought for me to learn to use my voice and who believed and invested into my dreams. And so um, do that for people, please, for me. Um, uh, continue to be a church and a people uh, who, are, who say yes, uh, even if it's wild and crazy. Uh, there's kids who need us uh, to do that. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I wrote an autobiography. I was a school assignment. I'm not like um, an author. Um, but in the school assignment, uh, we had to write the last chapter was our dreams for the future. I had two. Um, one was to buy Mix 93.3 and turn it into a Christian music station. Secular music was killing the world, and it was my, my, my goal to change that. Uh, and my second dream uh, was to be a youth pastor. It's always been what I wanted to do since I was little. Um, and I laugh at myself reading it uh, because I said things like, every single day I see kids my age ruining their lives with their poor decision making. Uh, and, if, and all I want is if I could just reach one youth. Um, and over and over again I talk about saving the youths. Like, I am a youth. What, who am I? Like, I'm in seventh grade. Uh, but there's been this fire in my bones for a long time to be a part of the redemptive story that God is writing uh, in, in being involved in that with kids. And so I went to college to study youth ministry. Um, and while I was there, I was sitting in a chapel service, and there is, uh, the presenter was talking about a place called Skid Row in California, a place where kids lived in, in card, families lived in cardboard communities, and school buses would come in and would do school on the bus because kids were so transient. And there is an anger that was lit inside of me, the injustice of that, uh, the reality that there are so many kids in the world that face impossible situations, incredible injustices, um, not because they made poor decisions, but because of the decisions of grown-ups. Um, and I wanted to do something about it. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I'll take, you know, I'll go and I'll get my youth pastor position somewhere and we'll take missions trips to the city. Um, and God uh, did not let my heart be satisfied with that answer. 
um, and continued to ha- put this burden inside of me that there was something I needed to physically do in the city. And so I decided that uh, I would join an internship program at City Union Mission. I moved into the shelter when I was 20 years old. Um, if uh, you heard Chris's story about my timidness, um, that's pretty consistent in my life. I'm afraid of animals, puppies, kittens, um, everything. <laughs> like fear is something that comes really easy for me. Um, and so that it made perfect sense to me to move into a homeless shelter by myself is uh, only God's uh, movement in my life. Um, and I moved in. Uh, really convinced that in my 10-week internship that I could eradicate the city of, homeless, uh, of homelessness, that um, there would be no more need for homeless shelters because I had solved the problem. And God in his graciousness allowed me to learn from people who I thought were very different than me. Um, he showed me uh, his goodness in ways that I had never seen before. Uh, people were rescuing broken parts of my heart, um, and I thought I was there to rescue them. And I'm profoundly grateful for that experience and for the ways that it captured my heart and the ways I fell in love with the people and the rhythm uh, of the city. And so I stuck around. I worked the next five and a half years in the shelter. And while I was there, um, my eyes were open uh, to the reality that there is a really huge issue uh, when it came to academics. Um, The kids were never, ever, ever going to break the cycle of poverty if we didn't give them a way out. Um, if, we, if they can't pursue college and career, they'll continue to be in low-paying jobs. They'll continue to be stuck in the same cyclical cycles uh, that have been happening for generations. Uh, and so, again, this fire was lit inside of my bones. Uh, this, hey, somebody's got to do something about that moment. Uh, I think over and over again, it's been anger that has driven me to make the next step. I used to be so afraid of my own anger. Uh, I used to think that anger was a bad thing, and I've learned... Um, the anger is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. Uh, when I'm angry, I have more strength and power than I ever thought I could have. Uh, my vocabulary increases dramatically. Um, there's so much energy that happens around my anger. Um, and for lots of years, that anger was funneled and it left behind me a wake of destruction and pain and hurt and ache. I've watched anger do that in so many other spaces. Um, and I'm challenged uh, by Jesus' anger and his response to it. In Mark 3, uh, he's trapped in this impossible situation with a man with a shriveled up hand um, who's asking for healing, uh, but it's on the Sabbath, and so the Pharisees kind of have him pitted. Um, do you do you know, what's right in caring for someone or what's right by the law? Uh, and it says that Jesus looked at them in anger and healed the man. Uh, And I pray, um, again, for our communities that we become a place where our anger is used to to leave behind us a wake of hope and redemption and healing, Um, that that energy um, and that wildness that comes from our anger, that unstoppable force that follows us when we're mad, um, that we would find the things that break God's heart and that we would wholeheartedly say yes to throwing our anger uh, towards things that matter. And I think things that matter can be such a... Uh, people think, oh, well, I need to move to the city then, um, or I need to do this thing, or I need to do what that person's angry about. Um, and there are so many things to be mad about. Uh, I met this incredible farmer the other day who is angry about the way the land um, is being overproduced and overharvested, and he is fighting, throwing his whole life into the salvation of the land and sustainable farming. I have no desire to do that, but I'm grateful that there's someone who's angry about the earth. 
Um, I, I'm, I see people who are angry about uh, the mistreatment of animals. I don't want to do that. I'm scared of that. But I'm glad there are people who want to throw their anger into that. There are people who see the corporate world as a place of corruption and want to bring light, and they've thrown their life into doing something about it. And that's not my thing, but I'm grateful that there's people who are doing that. Um, and so I, I, I'm, I'm so... Uh, passionate about helping people understand what they're angry about and how they can throw their life into it. Throwing my life into something for me, uh, again, looked like education reform. Uh, the moment it came to a head was there was a girl named Jasmine. Uh, she had moved into my house. Um, she was 17, was in an abusive situation at home. Foster care wasn't a great solution because uh, she was just going to age out almost immediately. And so I had the most uncomfortable conversation of my life up to that point and talked to her mom uh, about um, the ways that she wasn't able to take care of her, um, and she moved in with me. And that first night, we sat down to do her homework. I was intimidated. Uh, Jasmine uh, is a driven, passionate human being. Uh, She wanted desperately to be the first person in her family to graduate from high school, and she was very committed to doing that. Uh, She had tested into some honors courses. She was in an AP English class, and I thought to sit down and help her with her homework, I'm going to look real silly. Uh, But I wanted to show her I was beside her, and so we sat down to work on that AP English um, assignment. It was a study guide for her upcoming test. Um, The first part of it was a vocabulary list. The first word on her vocabulary test was document, and the second word was appreciate. This was a senior level advanced placement class, and she was learning vocabulary words that I'm confident were my third grade spelling words. And the injustice of that lit a fire inside of me that that you wouldn't believe. Um, How is, like, Jasmine was working hard and facing insurmountable odds. My parents woke me up every morning. We had breakfast together. They gave me a car to drive to school. I had a great community of people supporting me. Jasmine was completely alone, helping to raise her four younger siblings with a dad who was a a drug addict and a mom who didn't have any support and couldn't take care of them. She woke herself up. She woke her siblings up. She rode the metro to school. Um, Like, what she was doing was far harder than anything I had ever done, and she fought for her education far harder than I ever fought for mine, Um, and yet I was just handed on a silver platter an education that made it easy to walk into college. Um, And Jasmine was walked across the stage so proud, and I wept, Um, and I think she thought I was so happy for her, but I was heartbroken because I knew that she thought she had graduated with a diploma that was going to break the cycle of poverty for her and her family, and it did nothing because it had no weight. She couldn't even test into junior college. Her scores were so low. Uh, She was told she would need a year of private remedial tutoring before she could uh, go into their remedial classes before she could start junior college. There's a whole group of girls I was hanging out with at the time. One of them took that path. Um, And she just graduated junior college this year, um, six years later. Um, Like, it's that dismal um, that, like, she worked full time at junior college for six years just to graduate uh, with a two-year diploma because she was so far behind. Um, And so I think, for me, the question becomes, why does a school like Urban Christian Academy have to exist? 
And there's different ways that people answer that question. And there are people who say, you know, well, of course, um, in the urban core, you know, the families there don't care about education. They, you know, are financially illiterate. They have these vices that hold them into these cycles of poverty. And so, you know, those poor kids are victims uh, to their parents. Um, But I would propose um, that maybe there's something else happening, uh, that there are systemic issues that are keeping entire communities of people uh, oppressed in a cyclical um, cycle of poverty. Uh, There's a map um, I think that I shared um, that shows the demographics of Kansas City. Um, And it's uh, a super, maybe one more. There we go. It might be hard to see, but the orange dots um, are dots that represent people that have the same skin color as me, Uh, so white Caucasian individuals. The green dots represent people who are African-American, that have black skin, Um, and our city is so divided. Uh, We're considered one of the most hyper-segregated cities in Kansas, or Kansas City is considered one of the most hyper-segregated cities in the country. Um, Case study after case study after case study is done on why our city looks like this. Um, In Kansas City, um, really the the idea of having covenant communities, of having um, uh, defined places where different types of people live, it was birthed right here where we live. The Country Club, Club Plaza was a great experiment in figuring out if we could keep people who weren't white out of white neighborhoods. Um, And this happened through things like redlining, so creating neighborhoods um, where you couldn't get a house, you couldn't get a loan if you had black skin. Um, It happened through things like blockbusting, where people would go through and scare community members to move out of a neighborhood um, over the threat that someone with black skin might become their neighbor. And this wasn't a long, long, long time ago that this happened. This wasn't hundreds of years. Uh, There are people alive who know this story very well. Um, when you look at this map, uh, when, when Kansas City um, reintegrated or integrated, when uh, desegregation happened in schools, uh, nobody had to integrate because our city was already so divided uh, based on geographic boundaries of where certain people lived. And so we could say, hey, we are uh, moving towards integration, but the truth is we just drew boundary lines around school districts to make sure that white kids didn't have to go to school with black kids, uh, to make sure that white families could live in neighborhoods that didn't have black families a part of them. Uh, We look at things like the New Deal that gets celebrated um, because we come off of the Depression and we look towards home ownership as a way that can build equity uh, and give families a chance to kind of get their feet back under them. The problem was you could only get a loan uh, through the Federal Housing Authority if you were white. Um, It's like recent history um, continues to promote this notion that if you have black skin, you don't have access to the same things. And what a map that looks like this and housing and loan policies that are based off of these geographic lines and education systems that are based off of these geographic lines, what it ends up doing is creating the second map um, that shows the income inequality. Um, uh, there we go, yeah. So. Um, the bigger the dot is, the bigger the income difference is based on baseline. Um, and so um, the blue dots 
represent an income that's above the median average, and the red dots represent an income that's below the median average. And you can see very distinctly that our racial boundaries in Kansas City directly um, are tied to our income inequality in Kansas City. I could show another map that looks exactly like this, but it talks about education inequality. Um, our city has been set up to keep certain people groups oppressed in certain spaces. Um, and one little school is not going to fix that, um, which brings me to my next soapbox, which is maybe the first um, uh, graph that I showed. Um, perfect. I think in this uh, really challenging time as a country and a community, um, I have wept over having no idea how to lead courageously. Um, and I've looked to the prophets um, as maybe a way that I could dig my feet into uh, wisdom uh, that could help me lead. Um, and I, I think what I've learned most predominantly uh, is I think I wanted to read the prophets so that I could get a glimpse of their prophetic imagination, so I could have the courage to dream big um, and to reimagine the way the world could be. Um, but if you've taken a look at the prophets, they don't start there, which is probably why people don't read the prophets very often. Um, because you look at Isaiah, 60% of the book um, is calling out with gut-wrenching particularities the old order, the way things used to be, the heartache uh, of their sin. And, and Isaiah is not saying things like, hey, you guys used to be kind of bad. Uh, but he's like with details, with names and dates and places um, and details calling out what was, what was and what is broken. Um, he doesn't pull punches. He doesn't try to sugarcoat things. It's charged language that, again, with particularity, calls out what used to be before we can dream about what could be. And I think um, in watching especially white communities figure out how to be a part of adding their voices to the fight for um, racial justice, uh, to be present in our communities, we're so afraid to call out with particularities what has happened in the past. Um, I don't know if it's true of the conversations you have, uh, but so often I hear in my circle of people say things like, well, I never had slaves, so I'm not a part of the problem. Or I've, I have black friends, so every, like, I'm not a part of the issue. Um, and that's okay. It's great that you never had slaves. It's awesome that you have friends that are different than you. However, before we can move forward, I think that the biblical um, precedent is before we can move forward, we have to be able to move backwards, look backwards, and call out with particularities the sins of the past. And I think why this is challenging for us to do um, as a country is because it's challenging for us to do as individuals. And again, this may be just me. Um, this is a diagram that comes from a place called the Allender Center. Um, and it sounds like emotionally healthy church. Um, maybe is that connected to the emotionally healthy spirituality people? Yeah, they have a lot of Allender Center work. So maybe this is like, you guys are like Kaylee. We are like way past this. Um, but for me, this has uh, been really revolutionary. Um, so you can uh, pity me if you're like, hey, we've done this. We've been there. Uh, but this is a place where I'm learning to grow. Um, I believe in resurrection, capital R resurrection, that Jesus died and he rose again and there's freedom in that. I have a really hard time believing in lowercase resurrection. 
Um, but I would propose um, that maybe there's something else happening, uh, that there are systemic issues that are keeping entire communities of people uh, oppressed in a cyclical um, cycle of poverty. Uh, there's a map um, I think that I shared um, that shows the demographics of Kansas City. Um, and it's uh, a super, maybe one more. I might, there we go. It might be hard to see, but the orange dots um, are dots that represent people that have the same skin color as me, uh, so white Caucasian individuals. The green dots represent people who are African American, that have black skin, um, and our city is so divided. Uh, we're considered one of the most hyper-segregated cities in Kansas, or Kansas City is considered one of the most hyper-segregated cities in the country. Um, case study after case study after case study is done on why our city looks like this. Um, in Kansas City, um, really the, the idea of having covenant communities, of having um, uh, defined places where different types of people live, it was birthed right here where we live. The Country Club, Club Plaza was a great experiment in figuring out if we could keep people who weren't white out of white neighborhoods. Um, and this happened through things like redlining, so creating neighborhoods um, where you couldn't get a house, you couldn't get a loan if you had black skin. Um, it happened through things like blockbusting, where people would go through and scare community members to move out of a neighborhood um, over the threat that someone with black skin might become their neighbor. And this wasn't a long, long, long time ago that this happened. This wasn't hundreds of years. Uh, there are people alive who know this story very well. Um, when you look at this map, uh, when, when Kansas City um, reintegrated or integrated, when uh, desegregation happened in schools, uh, nobody had to integrate because our city was already so divided uh, based on geographic boundaries of where certain people lived. And so we could say, hey, we are uh, moving towards integration, but the truth is we just drew boundary lines around school districts to make sure that white kids didn't have to go to school with black kids, uh, to make sure that white families could live in neighborhoods that didn't have black families a part of them. Uh, we look at things like the New Deal that gets celebrated um, because we come off of the Depression and we look towards home ownership as a way that can build equity uh, and give families a chance to kind of get their feet back under them. The problem was you could only get a loan uh, through the Federal Housing Authority if you were white. Um, like it, it's like recent history um, continues to promote this notion that if you have black skin, you don't have access to the same things. And what a map that looks like this and housing and loan policies that are based off of these geographic lines and education systems that are based off of these geographic lines, what it ends up doing is creating the second map um, that shows the income inequality. Um, uh, there we go, yeah. So. Um, the bigger the dot is, the bigger the income difference is based on baseline. Um, and so um, the blue dots represent an income that's above the median average, and the red dots represent an income that's below the median average. And you can see very distinctly that our racial boundaries in Kansas City directly um, are tied to our income inequality in Kansas City. I could show another map that looks exactly like this, but it talks about education inequality. Um, our city has been set up to keep certain people groups oppressed in certain spaces. 
Um, and one little school is not going to fix that, um, which brings me to my next soapbox, which is maybe the first um, uh, graph that I showed. Um, perfect. I think in this uh, really challenging time as a country and a community, um, I have wept over having no idea how to lead courageously. Um, and I've looked to the prophets um, as maybe a way that I could dig my feet into uh, wisdom uh, that could help me lead. Um, and I, I think what I've learned most predominantly uh, is I think I wanted to read the prophets so that I could get a glimpse of their prophetic imagination, so I could have the courage to dream big um, and to reimagine the way the world could be. Um, but if you've taken a look at the prophets, they don't start there, which is probably why people don't read the prophets very often. Um, because you look at Isaiah, 60% of the book um, is calling out with gut-wrenching particularities the old order, the way things used to be, the heartache uh, of their sin. And, it, and Isaiah is not saying things like, hey, you guys used to be kind of bad. Uh, but he's like with details, with names and dates and places um, and details calling out what was what was and what is broken. Um, he doesn't pull punches. He doesn't try to sugarcoat things. It's charged language that, again, with particularity, calls out what used to be before we can dream about what could be. And I think um, in watching especially white communities figure out how to be a part of adding their voices to the fight for um, racial justice, uh, to be present in our communities, we're so afraid to call out with particularities what has happened in the past. Um, I don't know if it's true of the conversations you have, uh, but so often I hear in my circle of people say things like, well, I never had slaves, so I'm not a part of the problem. Or I've, I have black friends, so every, like, I'm not a part of the issue. Um, and that's okay. It's great that you never had slaves. It's awesome that you have friends that are different than you. However, before we can move forward, I think that the biblical um, precedent is before we can move forward, we have to be able to move backwards, look backwards, and call out with particularities the sins of the past. And I think why this is challenging for us to do um, as a country is because it's challenging for us to do as individuals. And again, this may be just me. Um, this is a diagram that comes from a place called the Allender Center. Um, and it sounds like emotionally healthy church. Um, maybe is that connected to the emotionally healthy spirituality people? Yeah, they have a lot of Allender Center work. So maybe this is like, you guys are like Kaylee. We are like way past this. Um, but for me, this has uh, been really revolutionary. Um, so you can uh, pity me if you're like, hey, we've done this. We've been there. Uh, but this is a place where I'm learning to grow. Um, I believe in resurrection, capital R resurrection, that Jesus died and he rose again and there's freedom in that. I have a really hard time believing in lowercase resurrection, um, that Jesus uh, can resurrect particular deaths inside of me and bring something new. Um, I think that I often want to find a silver lining or I want to find a way to not have to face the darkness of pain and death um, and just move on to something happy. Um, that, that emotionally, um, my spirituality has oftentimes tried desperately to avoid the hard things um, so I can cling to some false resurrection, some false hope um, that like happiness is what Jesus cares about. 
Um, And I've been learning that for me to be able to be a person that can sit alongside someone um, in their darkness, I have to be willing to have sat in my own darkness um, and to believe that there is hope for actual resurrection to come from that. So the way this diagram works um, is it is a reflection of um, the resurrection story of Jesus. So if you start at the top left of the U, um, it's Friday. Uh, you dip down into the U where that X is, it's Saturday. And then the hope of resurrection is the top right of the U, Sunday. Um, and oftentimes what we try to do is skip across Saturday on that red dot and just get to Sunday. Um, and we want, uh, I was just with a friend's mom this weekend who literally any hard thing that came up, she would simply just say, well, Jesus died and rose again, so it's going to be okay. Yes, totally. I believe that with all of my heart. And right now it really, really hurts. Uh, I have a kid um, whose dad just died um, at our school. And completely unfair, unjust, heartbreaking way. And so many people say, well, at least he has a good mentor. That is skipping right across the pain of his story and saying, well, at least. Or, well, Jesus has a plan. God knows his future. Absolutely God does. And right now that little boy is in the pit of darkness and he needs someone who has been there themselves and sat in their own pain and believed desperately that even though they don't know when hope is coming, that Jesus rose from the dead and that that hope is available for them too. But I think too many Christians don't want to do that. We just want to say, well, Jesus is alive, so it's okay. Um, And there's real hurt and pain in the world that we'll never be able to attend to if we don't let Jesus attend to our own pain. And not just in a a simple way. Um, You know, I think that for a long time I could say simple things like, um, you know, I have some issues about um, charismatic Christianity because the church I grew up in um, abused that in some ways. Well, that's fine. Um, But the but a more helpful analysis of that is to, with particularity, say what the pain was um, so that Jesus can come and attend to, with particularities, the pain that actually exists. I think it's profound that Jesus calls himself living water because what water does is it always goes to the lowest point. That's where it all, it's always fighting and fighting and fighting to get to the lowest point our school new school just flooded and so i know that this is what water does it doesn't go to the highest point and run off the building it finds the lowest point and with all of its force it attends to the lowest point and i don't know why in my life i've tried so hard to stay at the top because that isn't really where the power of jesus is the power of living water is in the pit the power of living water is at the lowest point um And I pray that the church becomes a place where people can slide into the bottom of the U and be honest with particularity about our pain and let Jesus surprise us with his resurrection power to bring life out of death instead of trying to do it ourselves and skip across the red line and say everything's going to be okay because capital R resurrection happened. I don't have to attend to my own resurrections in my own heart. Um, And I pray that as we do this, we become a people that can then be a part of racial healing because we can then know what it's like to, with particularities, call out the sins and the brokenness of the past. And together we can reimagine with prophetic imagination what the future could be.
And it is hard and complicated, and there's no easy answers. In the same way that in your own story, there's no simple answers to the brokenness that, that you've endured. Um, that I, I, I think why I want to skip across the top of the U is because I want Jesus to be simple. And I want um, my an- the answers that I can give kids who are in heartbreaking situations a simple answer, and I can't. I, all I can give them is my ability to sit in the pain with them and hope alongside of them for real resurrection because I believe with all of my heart that that's actually possible because I've let myself feel the ache and the, the hurt of pain um, and let Jesus lead me to an actual resurrection. And, and so from this place that, that I'm learning to believe in, um, that there's a reason that our, our school has to exist because historically um, the east side of the city has been terribly marginalized. And so we have to reimagine how we do education. Um, we started with just this little class of kids um, and it felt kind of silly. Actually, I called Doug uh, when I first had this idea to try to pitch him to help me put a window in my basement and his idea was to buy a school building so really this is Doug's fault it would have been a small little thing if he wouldn't have kept dreaming so big Um, uh, but his exact words were that it could be creepy and probably unsustainable to have a school in your basement Um, which is valid totally true Um, but but this little dream of like hey we can just we need to re-envision how we teach kids it's not going to be enough to just come to school for a couple hours a day and send them back home um, into the same kind of situations how do we break the cycle of poverty Um, and one of our first questions was if kids didn't have to come to school would they still want to and if the answer is no I have no desire to be at school then it's an uphill losing battle Um, and so the foundation of our school um, is not academics but it's trust-based relationships um, and it's figuring out how we walk alongside kids um, in a way that acknowledges the pain of their story and believes with them that there's hope. Um, that means knowing the particularities of their stories. That means listening. Uh, that means uh, being attuned to trauma, abuse, and neglect and knowing ways that we can uh, bring practices into the classroom that help realign the broken places in their own um, neurological Um, development and physical development. Uh, We do things that people think are silly, like um, uh, on a silly component, every single one of our kindergartners and first graders every single day is fed by hand um, while they sit at the carpet and and a loving adult looks in their eyes and says, I love you or you're special or I'm glad you're in my class today. Um, And it's a gummy worm or a vitamin or something small. Um, but every child who has been in a nurturing relationship has been held by their mom um, while she feeds them. And for many of our kids, that isn't their story. And neurologically, there's huge gaps when it comes to trust because no one ever held them and looked them in their eyes while they ate and said, you are worthy of being loved and you are precious. And so we get the privilege of going back and every day, I don't get to bottle feed the kids anymore. Um, Like that's long gone, but I can put a gummy worm in their mouth and look them in their eye while their need is being met and say, you matter and you're valuable and I love you. Um, Around food, we feed kids every two hours. Um, Again, at trust-based relationships that so many of our kids have lived in in food insecure environments that there's huge trauma and triggers around food. And so we get to go in 
um, and say, hey, when you get to school, we're going to give you food. And two hours later, you're going to get a snack. And two hours later, we're going to give you a hot meal. And two hours later, we're going to give you another snack. And then before you leave for school, we're going to send food home in your backpack so that you know where your next meal is coming from. Um, and, and in that way, we get to rewire um, their belief that there is someone who's going to meet their need, um, that when they have a need, there's someone attuned to them uh, who's making sure that need is taken care of. Um, back when we used to be together and like do things in the world, we go on field trips. Um, and that was a huge component of our school is helping kids touch and see uh, what they're learning about and to learn that Kansas City is not just a place that they need to escape from, uh, but that there's beauty and life and vibrancy and God's fingerprints all over their own community. Um, and to get to be a voice that doesn't just help kids make it out, uh, but that equips and inspires indigenous leaders to stay and fight for their communities. Um, and, and I would love to spend the rest of the day talking about like why we do what we do and how we do it and the things that make us different, um, but that would take forever. Um, and so what I do want to say is you can learn so much more about what we're up to online, um, urbanchristianacademykc.com or ucakc.org. Um, hit us up, learn about our story. Um, I have magazines that I left out in the back, uh, and if you're at home, uh, you can email us at info at ucakc.org or reach out to Chris uh, or the church office, um, and they can uh, send that to you as well. Uh, but that magazine will tell you more of our story and what we're about. Uh, I also brought um, some quotes. Uh, I think the most profound thing about being a part of this school uh, is that God has shown me so much of his truth and his beauty through the words of kids. Um, but one of our scholars, Amirie, uh, she uh, said one time that everybody is different like the rainbow. The rainbow is the most beautiful when it's all of the colors, um, not just all the same. And uh, so I, I brought some of these quotes to pass along to you, and, and I hope that if you put this in your space, uh, that can remind you about the deep work of reconciliation um, and what that looks like and um, that you would pray for God to show you what it looks like to do your own healing work so that you can actively be a part of his healing work in other spaces um, and to pray for us at UCA uh, and the unique challenges that we're facing in this season. Um, again, I um, think I would be utterly lost if I didn't know that there's communities uh, like the one that you're a part of um, that was investing in UCA. Uh, and so the last slide that I want to share with you is uh, from an artist called Scott the Painter. Uh, if you don't follow him, um, I would urge you to. Um, he does visual liturgies. Um, and uh, he drew this fire extinguisher um, and labeled it our tears. Um, and I'm really confident and believe with him um, that the way uh, to extinguish the insanity uh, of a world on fire um, is not just through hustling harder, uh, but by weeping together uh, and with particularities, sitting beside each other in the pain um, and desperately believing for resurrection together. Uh, and so I'd love to pray for us. Um, and again, thank you so much for the ways that you've invested into my little dream uh, and the ways that it's impacting Kansas City. God, thanks um, that you bless our tears Thanks that you're not a God who stayed in heaven and gave us a simple fix, but that you put on flesh and blood and you hurt alongside of us for our redemption. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to feel the depths of our own pain, uh, that you would um, 
Give us the strength to call out with particularities uh, the aches inside of our own hearts. And that Spirit, Holy Spirit, you would come um, and you would breathe resurrection into those spaces. And I pray that from that belief and that joy and that hope uh, in a God who resurrects, uh, that we could walk into the world and be able to cry and mourn and grieve alongside of the brokenness with the hope that you are a God who has redeemed and is restoring all things. Thanks that you let us be a part of your rescue plan. Uh, we're so grateful for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.